Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Deal Room, where every week we talk specifically about all things corporate finance, from the biggest M&A and PE deals to the strategy that drives business decision making. We aim to bring what you learn in the classroom to life with real world examples and hopefully at the same time have some fun with it. So let's dive in. Hello and welcome to The Deal Room. So today we are mixing it up a bit. If you are on our YouTube channel, you can see that there's no Ant. We've replaced Ant, not permanently. He'll be back next week. Uh, But this is a first of its kind. We have invited one of our Amplify Me alum, Jagger Lambert, to help us conduct what I would describe as a forensic deep dive into the Paramount story, the Paramount saga. I think we all know what Paramount is, the 100-plus-year-old U.S. media conglomerate. We're going to unpack Paramount and really, really get into this story. I really hope that this is a brilliant conversation. The story of Paramount reads, as Jagger, you were saying to me offline, it reads like an episode of Succession or maybe the concept of Succession. So we cover that on the pod. We also look at the wider market trends. Uh, of cable TV and streaming. We look at some valuation analysis. Jagger's put together some really good stuff on that. Going to look at an overview of Paramount's corporate structure because it's such an important element of this deal that is on the table. Then we're going to look at the runners and riders in terms of who's bidding for Paramount. Is it really for sale? And who's going to end up with the trophy? Or maybe it's not a trophy. Maybe it's a bit of a Dud. So this is a brilliant case study for any student wanting to focus on a particular deal that they can mention and talk about with confidence uh, in their inter- interviews for internships and uh, and grad positions as well. So, Jagger, how are you doing? Doing great, Stephen. Um, very, very grateful to, to have the chance to speak about the company um, on this podcast. And it's always a pleasure to talk to you, whether it's just about M&A in general, and especially when we get to talk about 
sports and media and entertainment um, deals and trends. Fantastic, Jagger. Well, look, so Jagger was part of our Amplify Me uh, summer analyst training program a couple of years ago. Um, and, you know, we've spoken a lot since. But for the for the purpose of the audience, tell uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm Jagger. I'm currently a junior or third year um, at NYU Stern School of Business, currently majoring in finance and minoring in the it's called BEMT, which means Business of Entertainment, Media and Technology. I've always been really interested in the combination of finance and media entertainment. Uh, my family's in the media entertainment business. Um, and over the past few years, I've had a chance to work in um, media investments, whether that's media private credit, media private equity. Um, also worked in strategy and corp dev roles at some sports and media companies like Madison Square Garden Sports, which owns uh, the Knicks and the New York Rangers, which is on the hockey side, um, as well as doing some film production too. Uh, and I'm currently uh, about to become an investment banking summer analyst at Morgan Stanley. So that's where I'll be this summer, uh, hopefully getting to work on uh, a lot of deals I'm interested in. That's awesome. Thank you, Jagger. And Jagger, you're you're all over this story. I remember we discussed this for the first time a couple of weeks ago. And I thought to myself, this is this is a story with personalities that's so interesting. And there's such an interesting corporate finance angle to this story that I thought I have to get you on and you know this story inside out so let's uh let's get right into it um let's start at the beginning tell me a little bit about Paramount what does it do give me the history the backstory make it as juicy as you want yeah absolutely it's a it's a fascinating story um so I guess I'll start with what it Paramount is currently and then go into the history of it because it's taken many, many shapes and forms over the years, um, and a lot of the same forms over and over again, um, which I'll, I'll explain in a bit. So Paramount Global is a global diversified media company that was created through the CBS and Viacom merger in 2019, which was about a $30 billion merger, all stock. Um, so kind of key assets, or if you think of key parts of the company, include CBS network, um, local broadcast stations, so that's like if you're in the U.S. or in some international markets, you'll see the CBS networks and they'll have sports, they'll have news. Um, and it's a very big revenue driver of and profitability driver of the company. It also includes some other um, kind of TV networks like Showtime, MTV, BET. Then you have the famous Paramount Studios, which has been around for over 100 years. Um, and now more recently over the past couple of years, they also have um, many different streaming kind of assets, including Paramount Plus. Pluto TV, um, and some other international streaming operations. So you can kind of think of it as it has three business segments. Um, the first being direct to consumer, which otherwise is known as streaming. And that includes, like I said, Paramount Plus, Pluto TV, and a few others. Um, and then you have TV media, which is essentially uh, when you think of cable or broadcast segment. And then finally, you have filmed entertainment, which includes both like theatrical revenue. So when you go to theater and you see a Paramount movie, um, that's how they get revenue there. But they also don't just get revenue in that segment from the movie theaters. Um, they also get revenue when they, after it's done with its theatrical release, they license that content to other either studios or um, different platforms um, to monetize it. Um, so Paramount overall has had a kind of rocky couple of years. They uh, have had pretty flat revenue um, last couple of years and decreasing margins. So their EBITDA went down from 20% in 2020 to 
about 8% uh, of this, this year. So definitely in financial decline, a lot of it has been driven by uh, un the unprofitability of streaming. And now to kind of go back uh, to think about like what, how we got here. So firstly, there's a couple of really important key people to talk about. Um, and those are Summer Redstone and Sherry Redstone. So CBS and uh, Viacom have been together and separated many times, uh, even before Summer Redstone. So they were uh, originally separated in the 1970s because of uh, trade, uh, Federal Trade Commission rules kind of banning uh, cable TV operators from owning different networks. So they were separated. Redstone uh, kind of took over his company's, uh, his family's company, which was National Amusements, which was a theater owner, uh, theater operator. And he took it over and he began to fall in love with movies and want to start actually getting involved in production and not just distribution or theatrical. So he started investing a ton of money into several different media companies, including Fox and Viacom. And he built up his stake in these companies due to the performance of the stock price. And he was eventually able to take control of Viacom in a hostile takeover in 1987. From then, there have there was a crazy um, kind of board conflict, uh, war against the different parties, and he eventually won and stripped out the existing board, put in a more favorable board, and was able to do what's called a dual stock ownership, a class structure, which is essentially he split up both um, voting shares and non-voting shares, which allowed him to retain all the voting shares, which meant that he could own a very small percentage of the company, but have complete control over it. And this would have massive implications going forward, where he was allowed to basically operate as he saw fit. And so he then bought Paramount Studios, bought some other assets, bought CBS in, in 1999, um, brought the companies back together. Uh, and then 2005 separated them again, uh, in order to try to get the dividends from both those companies. So from 2005 to about 2018, CBS and Viacom were two different companies. And this is where the real kind of corporate battle happens. So he had several different kids, uh, including Sherry Redstone, who was the most prominent, as well as different wives and different people he was competing against. And there was essentially a continual all-out war between the different parties on control of the company. Um, and because of his voting shares in the company and the dual class structure, trying to get control of it. Um, it was rumored that his will in terms of his trust was changed 40 times uh, because uh, depending on the day, he had a different favored uh, kid or uh, successor um, to the business. Um, Sherry Redstone was actually estranged from her father uh, for many of those years. Um, he continually talked down to her, about her to her as well as to the other executives. Um, so they were very far apart, um, but she wanted to kind of make him proud and be able to take over the company so as you got to the waning years of, of his life uh, in the 2010s, uh, there was many different lawsuits against him. People thought he was running the he wasn't actually running the company because he was he was very ill at the time, and there were different kind of coups that came up, um, trying to oust him, oust Sherry Redstone, who seemed to be in a position to take over. And by the end uh, of his life, uh, Sherry Redstone was actually able to take over. There was a massive kind of lawsuit and legal battles against her. Um, but she was able to replace the boards to be more favorable to her um, and fire the ones, the opposition. And she was able to go ahead with what she wanted to do, which was the merger of CBS and Viacom in 2019 um, and kind of get it all under one company. Um, her father's kind of last wish was for the company not to be separated, uh, not for assets not to be sold. And it was told that uh, in the 
it was told that Cherry Redstone promised him that she would never like break up the company. Oh my word, Jagger! This is this is an amazing story. I was just thinking about um, thinking about reading more of this story. If you if you're into this kind of thing and you like Succession and you like the concept of wills changing forty times depending on the flavor of the day in terms of sons or wives or things like that, there is a book. I don't know if you've read Unscripted, the epic yeah, battle. That's a... Uh, it's a brilliant book, uh, and it tells you know if you want to learn more listeners about the story um just take a look at unscripted it's all about the uh the the story that jagger just summarized but let me just uh very quickly zone out i think you know what's really interesting about the story apart from the family dynamics is the place that paramount finds itself within different markets one of which is a legacy market or potentially a legacy market table and one of which is a market where it's really, really hard to turn a profit, streaming. So Jagger, talk, talk to me very quickly about those two markets and why Paramount's find it, found it so difficult, basically, to make money over the last few years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and to start, I would say that other than Netflix, it's been very hard for any uh, media company to answer this million dollar question. Or I guess billion billion dollar question to be to be more honest. Um, yeah, so it's essentially you're essentially trying to thread all these companies, including Paramount, trying to thread the needle. You want to be able to boost up your streamer and cut, like minimize unprofitability, while at the same time not building up it up so quickly that people leave cable and go to streaming, and then you lose profitability there. So you have on the cable side, you have. This is where most, almost all of Paramount's revenue comes from, um, as but in all their in all of their profitability comes from. But it's declining and it's declining fast, and that's through to se- uh, due to several factors. Some were starting to emerge even before uh, COVID happened, but people uh, due to very expensive cable bills, um, consumers were less likely to be able to rationalize it. So what you saw is a lot of consumers cut their cable. Uh, cable companies altogether, especially with the emergence of streaming uh, companies like Netflix, Hulu, uh, eventually Disney Plus, uh, uh, many others. And that affects Paramount because Paramount makes its money on cable through two means. One is advertising and the other is cable subscriptions. So what happens is when you pay your cable company, the cable company then distributes that money to the different like entertainment companies based on viewership. So, and it's on a per subscriber basis. So if you lose subscribers, you have less overall revenue, less overall profitability. Um, the streaming wars have really accelerated this because either now there's more streaming services, they're much lower cost on an individual basis than cable TV. Um, and they're also a lot of the other companies, including Paramount, have begun shifting content from cable TV to streaming. So that makes it a lot like less valuable appeal for a consumer who still paying the same price or more. Um, so that's been a real issue for the company, um, as well as, as well the fact that advertisers have begun shifting money from cable to streaming. So then you might think, okay, but they'll just recapture the benefit on streaming. They'll just shift completely to streaming. However, that's not really the case because just because you have advertisers who are willing to spend on your platform on cable doesn't necessarily mean on streaming. Paramount has a very dominant position on cable. They don't have a dominant position on streaming. So if I'm an advertiser, I might really want to have CBS and CBS has NFL and a lot of news and it's, it's very, very viewed. But on the streaming landscape, you have Netflix, you have Amazon Prime, you have Apple, a lot of, uh, you have 
like I said, Hulu, that have a lot bigger viewership. Paramount's actually one of the smallest streamers in terms of the major media companies. So they've been having a hard time trying to find kind of a growth audience. And what is led to for them, as well as other companies, is to invest a ton of money on content that's not really getting the return on investment. Um, so this led to $2 billion of losses in 22. Uh, the losses stabilized a little in 23, but they're still around $1.8 billion just on the sh- on Paramount Plus uh, and streaming. Um, so kind of going forward, Paramount's trying to figure out ways to rationalize those costs um, as well as um, kind of, yeah, just overall boost profitability. But it's, it's definitely a challenge. And this is something that this is something that we saw in the the music industry, you know, 10, 15 years ago, right? It was a it was a very money making industry that in the, with the decline of CDs and the move on to illegal streaming, the there was a it was an industry in crisis because they couldn't figure out the revenue model or the business model. And then obviously paid streaming, Spotify, et cetera, came along. It seems like it's relatively similar for the legacy cable chat, uh, TV providers. You know, they're losing their cash cow and they haven't yet been able to find an appropriate alternative cash cow unless you're Netflix. So it's a really yeah. interesting business model conundrum for the likes of Paramount. But obviously there's some really solid parts of the business or really attractive parts of the business. Otherwise we wouldn't be talking about Paramount in the context of a buyout. So where are the jewels in the crown for Paramount? What are the best parts of the business? Yeah. So I would say the best parts of the business are definitely Paramount Studios. There's a lot of interest in the studio specifically. It's again, one of the oldest studios, um, has a lot of storied success. Whether you think of franchises like the Top Top Gun, um, which just had the highest box office in a year ago, um, as well as Mission Impossible, Star Trek, a lot of these big uh, box office hits franchises that have con- Transformers that have continued for years on years. Um, and in a world where all the streamers are trying to kind of boost content, uh, Paramount is studios specifically is, is very desired by, by many parties. If it was an individual asset, uh, you would see it have quite a high value and trade at a very high multiple, uh, given the potential, because once you have the content, you're able to drive engagement, um, and you don't have to produce, like develop as much of your, uh, like unoriginal, you, you don't develop as much original ideas that are more risky. You have these kind of franchises that are much more consistent, uh, which is key. Um, and the other big assets are CBS uh, due to the fact that it has NFL rights as well as some other major sports rights, including uh, Champions League, uh, March Madness Tournament. And it's very valuable right now because it has locked up those contracts for at least the next 10 years which is a very important distinction with some of its other competitors, because that means it doesn't have to enter into any new expensive media rights negotiations. And Stephen, I know we've talked about quite frequently how high sports media rights have been rising and how they're going to continue to rise. Um, so being able to avoid that is, is quite key. And sports is still the only, essentially the only thing that still drives viewership on cable TV. So having the NFL uh, in particular is, is massive. Um, and then there are some of their individual smaller assets that I do think are quite valuable, including Pluto TV, uh, which is a streaming service that's not talked about as much. It's a little bit different than Paramount Plus uh, in that it's called a fast free advertising streaming TV. So essentially, you don't pay a subscription fee. You, the company just the segment just makes revenue from advertising. And it's been the fastest growing um, kind of segment of TV. And it has revenues like 
uh, over $1 billion. So it's a very high uh, CAGR um, and it's going to continue. So there's been a lot of interest on that. So if I was looking at this from a banker's perspective, I go, this is a great sum of the parts valuation analysis, you know, chop this thing into a load of, you know, into the good assets and the bad assets sell the good assets individually at a significant premium and just get rid of all of the bad assets. That obviously doesn't seem to be happening, partly maybe because of the dying wish of Sumner Redstone, do not split this company up. But let's move on to the, let's move on to the bidders that are bidding for the whole thing. And now at the beginning of the week, when we spoke about this and, and thought about putting this podcast together, we were just going to talk about Skydance, David Ellison, that potential offer on the table, that bid on the table. But as is the case in these types of things, there has been a new piece of news, a new offer on the table. And this is a $14 billion offer, actually totaling 30 billion, including debt from Byron Allen. Now I'm from the UK. That name wasn't particularly familiar to me. So tell a, a, a UK audience, who is Byron Allen and what are they doing buying or trying to buy Paramount for $14, 15000000000 billion? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and to be honest, a lot of people in the US, even those who follow the media spaces, don't fully know Byron Allen. Um, he's kind of emerged as a major media executive um, out of nowhere. So he started as a uh, comedian for many years. And uh, so and he eventually pivoted to due to his interest in media. Uh, starting his own media company, Allen Media Group, um, and began buying different linear uh, TV. Again, when I say linear, that means cable um, TV assets. Uh, so the most famous one, I guess, uh, is the Weather Channel. So he's the owner of that, as well as some other smaller channels. Um, and he's been able to build up the company very successfully. He's a he's a really big personality, um, and has been trying to take the uh, industry by storm. And over the past year, he's been very um, set on buying different linear TV assets from the major companies. So uh, just earlier this year, uh, or I guess now in 2023, he bid uh, $3.5 billion for BET, um, which is a Paramount-owned asset, um, which was rejected. Um, and he also bid $10 billion um, to buy ABC and a couple other smaller channels from Disney uh, at a time when Disney was thinking about exploring the sale. Uh, those talks haven't really seemed to go anywhere. Um, so now he's he's decided those didn't work. So let's go bigger. Uh, and now he's offered for all of Paramount Global. Um, what's interesting about his offer, as opposed to some of the other ones, is that he's genuinely just interested in the linear TV assets, which most other people are not interested in. Um, and he's actually stated he would, once he purchases it, he would sell off Paramount Studios to another uh, another buyer. Um, and yeah, so his offer is essentially a 50% premium to where the stock was trading at. And he's buying both um, the voting shares and non-voting shares. All right. This is a, yeah, this is a pretty big move. I was looking at his acquisitions to date in his kind of buy and build strategy. And I think they've totaled just over a billion dollars of successfully completed acquisitions. This is the best part of $30 billion, including debt. Is he a credible buyer? And does he have the financial firepower? Yeah, to be completely honest, no, no one knows. Um, he, I, I don't necessarily, 
I, I mean, he might have fine. He would have to get significant out um, external financing, like uh, because of the fact that, yeah, his company is around worth around billion, maybe slightly over a billion. Um, he can't do any stock necessarily in this transaction because, I, besides the fact that his company is private, uh, don't believe Paramount Global shareholders would want stock in it in the company. Um, so. What there's been reports that he's been uh, he's gotten loans um, that are collateralized against his real estate and against his company. Uh, even so, it's it's hard to imagine that that would approach anywhere near the purchase price. Um, however, there might be some fun financiers, uh, secret media investors who are trying to get in and believe in him uh, due to his personality. And he has had a tremendous amount of success running the company um, so far and building it up. Um, so that always could emerge. Um, you could see the market's uh, skepticism about how likely that deal is to occur because when he originally announced the deal or the deal like originally leaked, um, it the stock price went up 20% almost momentarily and it's since fallen down um, tremendously. So just to be just about a five or 6% gain. Um, so a lot of people are unsure, um, but I mean, I'm sure Paramount Global shareholders are hoping that it's real. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, we, we've spoken on the pod, oh, I've spoken on the pod a couple of weeks ago, that in order to take a deal to the directors and to the board of a public company, you need to have financing in place, or at least the letters of intent to support an, uh, a financing. So this might just, this unless there are, unless there is financing in place, this might just go nowhere. The board don't even need to look at this, unless this looks like a credible, well-structured bid. So on that note, Let's talk about the other guys. Let's talk about Skydance. Talk about David Ellison. Give me an idea of who these guys are and what their interest is in Paramount. Yeah, absolutely. So David Ellison was uh, David Ellison is the son of Larry Ellison, who is the founder um, of Oracle. He's one of the richest people on earth, with essentially a net worth of, I believe, upwards of a hundred fifty billion, hundred sixty billion. Um, so. In terms of financing, they definitely have the financing. Um, and David Ellison has started uh, Skydance Media, which is a new kind of media company over the about seven or eight years ago. Um, and it's really been taking the industry by storm. They've had a tremendous amount of success um, in terms of producing films that are very kind of consumer friendly, a lot of action, um, blockbusters. Um, and they've had a very good relationship with Paramount already. Um, they co-produced many of the, their biggest hits, including Top Gun Maverick, Mission Impossible, uh, some of the Transformers movies, uh, like I talked about before. Um, so the, the two have worked really closely together. Um, they've financed a lot of movies and TV shows, um, and they've been quite successful uh, turning a profit each year for the last couple of years, which has been hard to do for <laughs> at any of the other media companies. Um, and in their last funding round, they were valued around, around $4 billion. They are currently owned by both KKR, which I'm sure many of the audience know who it is, and then Redbird Capital, who uh, most people probably don't know what that is. Redbird Capital is a sports and media-focused private equity firm with about a $10 billion AUM. And so what David Ellison and Skydance really want with Paramount is the studios. Um, that That is their main goal. They want to kind of combine the studios with Skydance and kind of create um and there's been a lot of positive reception on the side of Paramount to that. Uh however, it's likely that he's going to have to kind of also take in some of these other assets that he might not like as much, but he still thinks there's value, including CBS, 
Um, so they've been talking with Chair Redstone about acquiring the voting stock of mm. of um, Paramount in a all cash bid. Yeah, so this is interesting. So Skydance, David Ellison seem pretty credible. Seemed like they probably got the financial firepower. But the big question is Paramount's corporate structure, which you alluded to earlier on with these dual class shareholdings and this Topco or this company, National Amusements, I think it's called, owns 77% of the voting stock or something like that. So how, yeah, how is this going to work? Does Sherry really want to sell? And if so, is it you just do you, do you sell national amusements? Do you sell the whole thing? How is it going to play out? Do you think? Yeah. So, like I talked about before, National Amusements was the theater company that uh, Sumner Redstone originally owned. Uh, it's how he got in, bought in Viacom and was able to get control. Now, Sherry Redstone has it as only ten percent of the common stock of Paramount Global, but eighty around eighty percent of the voting share. So. There's a situation where companies like Redbird and Skydance or others can come in instead of buying the whole Paramount Global for $30 billion, uh, you can buy uh, the voting shares through national amusements for significantly less and essentially then have control. Uh, Skydance and uh, there's been a lot of reporting that their intent is essentially to buy out that uh, control stake and then vote to merge it with Skydance uh, after mm -hmm. they sell sell off some non some assets that they don't want and then merge it together. Um, so it allows them to have a lot of optionality. Um, Jerry Redstone, there's a lot been, been a lot of reporting that Redstone um, likes David Ellison a lot. Um, again, you have to remember there's a big emotional factor in this. Like they want someone who's going to care for the assets, care for the studios, um, and there's a kind of a belief that David Ellison would do that. Um, at the same time, if he just buys national amusements, just buys the voting shares, and it's a big premium, there's the possibility of shareholder lawsuits. Um, because again, when you have these dual class structures, you have the possibility that um, there's a belief that the people who have the voting shares don't act accordingly in the best interests of those who do not. So it can get very tricky. Um, and so, Redstones, the Redstones are probably uh, trying to get them a firm commitment that they would buy out eventually, like a promise essentially that they would buy out the rest of Paramount Global in order to avoid those lawsuits. Um, but it seems like that is currently their preferred bidder. Um, it could switch to uh, Allen um, if the financing is there. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, from a, from a shareholder's perspective, obviously you, you go to the highest bidder, but you also need to go to the most credible bidder that's going to that's going to follow through i mean this is this is a brilliant story and the and the dual class nature of the shareholding of or this corporate structure is one that we see all over the tech space and it's obviously in the news at the moment with regards to elon musk and his his desire to have an ever greater control of tesla so it's certainly something that students should be aware of and it makes these transactions just much much trickier just having a look at it, just thinking about this and listening to you describe both parties that are interested in this flagship asset. Do you think that they could come together if Byron Allen really wants the linear, the cable, and if Ellison and Skydance really wants the studios? Is this a, is, is Allen's kind of um, press leak a couple of days ago, is that a kind of invitation? For them to couple up, I don't know. What, what do you think? Yeah, 
No, uh, if that, I don't, I think I don't think it was coordinated. But if you if you read in the descriptions of what exactly they they are seeking and what is their main intention for the the their deals, um, it seems that there's definitely a path forward where they could do some sort of deal either together come in on the deal and then split up assets or one takes buys the company and then sells with an agreement that they sell the certain asset to the other party. Um, for them, that would be beneficial so they don't have to enter a bidding war against each other. Um, and like I said before, David Ellison and, and Skydance really are focused on Paramount Studios, um, whereas, um, whereas the other parties are um, focused much more on kind of linear assets. Mm -hmm. um, so there's definitely a way we can, uh, sorry, I said Byron Allen is much more focused on linear assets. So it's definitely a way we can split up. Um, and I think a deal could emerge that way. So, all right, time to get your crystal ball out. How do you, you know, we're sitting having this conversation in six months time. How do you see this thing play out? What do you think is the most likely outcome of these headlines, these stories, these potential offers? Yeah, so what I think is most likely right now, and you never know, there could also be, I mean, there were discussions with Warner Bros. Discovery, there were discussions with some other parties, they could always come in give a great offer and we'll see. But as of what's what stands right now, I think the most likely outcome uh, is to is for Sherry Redstone to sell the stake in National Amusements to um, Redbird and Skydance uh, and with an agreement that they will then merge with Paramount Global. Um, while there are kind of certain, um, there might be certain shareholder disputes around this, uh, I believe that if they are able to structure it in beneficial terms to shareholders, um, it will be mostly fine. And I think they would do a better job than Sherry Redstone of um, being able to sell off kind of these assets that are not really benefiting the company in terms of its overall valuation. That would be benefiting them a lot more if they were split off, sold individually. Um, so I think overall, that is likely where this is going to go. Um, and hopefully Paramount still exists kind of going forward. And that's my hope for it. I don't want to see one of my favorite studios uh, long, um, kind of disappearing. Um, and I think that's kind of what the feeling is right now. Yeah, and you're, and just to kind of wrap this up, you're, I mean, you did an amazing piece of work uh, with some of your colleagues at NYU that you shared with me on the valuation of Paramount. Uh, and you're pretty bullish on the Paramount story as a whole. You know, I mean, it's trading at what, $14 a share at the moment. It's class B shares at least. Um, you see, from what I understand, you see that as pretty undervalued. So you, I, I can imagine from your valuation analysis, it'd be lovely just to speak a little bit about that. I can imagine you think, all right, these bidders are credible and they're probably going to pick up something that's got intrinsic value that's not necessarily being recognized by the market. Yeah, absolutely. Um so I see this. I see this company is more the biggest issues being corporate governance and not, um, and not really the financials, um, because like I said before, they they have a lot of ability to sell up these non core assets and being able to put themselves in a better financial position. One of the major issues with Paramount has been dragging down the stock is its heavy debt load. So it's around nine and a half bill market cap, but around sixteen billion of debt. Um, and last year they entered into. Uh, period uh, quarters of negative free cash flow they rebounded to positive but that's a very very tough situation um but they have several assets that they would be able to get significant bids for and they did have significant bids for but that were rejected um because um 
because Redstone didn't want to take them. Um, like I said, there's always that that issue. Um, so I believe another like there's a higher value to a lot of these assets that is just not being executed. Um, and I would say kind of the overall kind of investment thesis I have is that their free cash flow and leverage position is artificially deflated due to some kind of integrations that they did in 2023 that were one-time expenses and they they lower the actual true trajectory of the free cash flow situation of the company. I also think there are several catalysts in their cable TV segment that will materialize in 24 that will boost the segment, um, including they have the Super Bowl this year. They have the AFC Championship. It's a ton of ad revenue. They're really exploring a well and kind of having it on uh, cable TV, but also having on Paramount Plus at advertising both against uh, each other. Um, so looking very successful. I think the DC does have a path to profitability. And the fourth is not just M&A activity that I think drives the stock price up, but also even if there's no M&A, there, I believe there will be more of a willingness to sell off non-core assets to bundle their streaming services with competitors to reduce churn and boost margins um, or to do more licensing agreements for content. So I believe that there's a way forward for the company to boost profitability um, and M&A activity is just icing on the cake. Um, and I believe that's kind of the path forward. My big final question, Jagger, are you going to the Super Bowl this year? I'm I'm trying. I'm very <laughs> I'm trying very much. I'm a 49ers fan. Um so them being in the Super Bowl is definitely, definitely making me very eager. And it's the first one in Las Vegas. So you gotta get to it's Vegas. Gonna be, it's gonna be a massive. So I'm gonna do everything I can to try to get there. Um if not, I'm just gonna be at home watching it. Uh hopefully a- they don't rip my heart out. Um, yeah, but, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna back the 49ers on your behalf, knowing very little about uh, knowing very little about the space. All right, uh, let's uh, let's leave it there, Jagger. Thank you so much for your time. This has been so interesting, and it's a brilliant case study. Obviously, as always, please anyone that's listened to this, drop a question on Spotify, YouTube, or on our LinkedIn page. Uh, If you've got a question for Jagger about his thesis or if you think something differently about the Paramount story, please do. uh, And we'll make sure that Jagger gets on the uh, on the comments board. So in the meantime, Jagger, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.